I'm so thankful to the team at the Bible Project. They produce and uh, distribute these videos for free uh, to you and to me. And I would highly encourage uh, you to visit thebibleproject.com. They've got a ton of resources there. One of the things I love about Bible Project is they take these really huge themes that you see throughout Scripture and they make them uh, easier to understand and consumable. And today, uh, we're using that video to help us conclude our uh, sermon series called Tis the Season. We've been looking at these last few weeks. We've been looking to uh, God's Word to help us find the grace and the wisdom that we need to live life abundantly in this holiday season, this season of consumerism, a season in which we're inundated with messaging that basically says your worth, your value, your safety, your security, your joy, it's all found in the stuff that you can buy this Christmas. And we get those messages thousands of times a day. And so uh, today what we're going to do is we're going to do things a little bit differently. Uh, We're going to talk about greed, but instead of doing kind of a frontal assault on greed, like greed is bad, don't do it, uh, I think most of us understand that greed isn't something that we want to be known for. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at the story of the cosmos And we're going to specifically look at how Jesus views the uh, world, how he views the framework of the cosmos, of our existence. We're going to do a deep dive in one of the most infamous teachings of Jesus to tease out some of these principles. And then we're going to spend uh, our concluding moments together today uh, taking communion and remembering God's goodness and giving thanks for that together. So uh, you maybe, if you've been around Desert Springs, maybe for a year or more, uh, you've probably heard us use the four-part story of the scriptures. It looks like this. It's something we use frequently to help us get our minds around the story of the cosmos as found in the scriptures. And we'll say things like, you know, that the Bible opens with creation. In the beginning, in the beginning was the beginning. Yeah, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, creation. And then shortly after, you have what's often called the fall, where people rebel against God. And then God does not leave us to our own destruction, but rather redeems us. So creation, fall, redemption, and then Jesus promises that one day he will return to fix all that which is broken, to restore his good creation. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's a four-part story of the cosmos. I love it. It's really helpful to frame uh, how the story uh, is working and where we're at in the story. But today we're going to tell the same story through a different lens. We're going to tell the story of the cosmos, party edition. (laughs) Party on, Wayne. Party on, Garth. You see, this is part of the liturgy of the American church. We greet one another as party on Wayne, and we return with the holy party on Garth. Yes, of course. Yeah, so this is from Wayne's World, Party Time, excellent uh, B-level movie in the 90s based on a B-level skit from Saturday Night Live. I'm sorry, but I had to do it because we're talking about the party that we see in creation. In fact, the four-part story of the universe could go like this, that the party got started, then the party got crashed, Then there's a pre-party, and then party on, party on. Here's why I want to show you this. I love the imagery of God as a generous host. Because if you and I, if we show up to a party, 
The host, the generous host, provides everything that we're about to engage in. Provides the setting, provides the atmosphere, provides the music, provides the food. Actually, it's the host that pulls the people together. Everything that you experience when you go to a good party was produced and presented and maintained by the host. And if you have a bad host, you have a bad party. If you have a good host, you have a good party. And when we think about our existence, we oftentimes think of toil and struggle. And there is toil and there is struggle. But the framework that Jesus saw the world in is that it is a good world created by a generous God who delights to give to his creation and for them to enjoy it. In fact, if you were to think of the story this way, in the beginning, God set the table. He put up all the decorations in this place called Eden. And then he invited in humanity. And humanity walked in and God said, look, you can have anything you want. Look at all this fruit I've provided. Look at all this food. Everything's delightful to the eyes. It's wonderful atmosphere. You can hear the bubbling brook. It's a wonderful place. God God makes it. He prepares it. He invites us in. And humanity enters into the party. But then greed crashes the party. In what's often called the fall, if you were to think of it through this lens, people, humanity, made in the image and likeness of God, said basically this in their hearts. Is God really going to provide what we need? Is God really good enough or strong enough or loving enough to provide what will bring us joy? Is God really going to abundantly provide for me? You know what I'm gonna need to do? Is I'm gonna need to go and I'm gonna need to take. I'm gonna need to take so I can protect me and mine. And imagine a party. Imagine you're at a party and there's a generous host with a huge spread. And there's like three people that create a faction And they're real nervous about the host not being able to provide enough. And so they go do raiding parties on the appetizer table. You walk up, you're like, where are the mozzarella sticks? And there's a bunch of people over in the pool room like, stay away. These are our sticks. You can have the Tostitos. And then another party from the den comes out and they do a raid on the people in the pool room. And then they begin stealing from each other and killing one another, saying, I've got to look out for me and mine. Because what if the host isn't going to provide what I need? And what happens to the party then? What happens to a party where everyone's mentality is the host is stingy or the host is weak or the host won't provide enough, so I'm going to need to take what's mine? What happens to the party? It's crashed. Greed crashes the party. And this is what's happened to humanity. God provides an abundant, wonderful, a a, a garden of delights is a way to translate the Garden of Eden. And yet people in the midst of the party start saying, what if God isn't going to provide for me? What if God isn't good enough or strong enough or loving enough to actually give me what I need? And so we begin to hoard and we crash the party. And this is what has sent humanity into an ever-spiraling, out-of-control, destructive, self-centered, 
isolated from each other, murderous path. Because when we start with, God is not generous, so I've got to take what's mine, we begin to justify all sorts of evil. Y'all ever seen that great theological film, The Godfather? Or maybe you've seen Breaking Bad. Come on, talk to me now. You guys seen The Godfather? You seen Breaking Bad? Okay, now, now I'm going to start naming TV shows. Don't worry, I'm not going to, there's no judgment. So, but, you know, like if you watch House of Cards or Game of Thrones or any of the, uh, There Will Be Blood was another one. All of these movies and television programs are showing you that the party's over. The Godfather. Think about the movie The Godfather. I love the movie The Godfather. But one, one of the things that is shown in the movie The Godfather is the insidious way that we justify our evil. Because if you watch the main character, Michael Corleone, he says the same thing that Hank does in Breaking... Was it Hank? What's the guy's name in Breaking Bad? Walter Wright. Thank you very much. The same thing that Walter says in Breaking Bad. I'm doing it for the family. I got to take care of me and mine. I gotta, there's not enough to go around in the world, and they've got some of what we need, and so I'm going to go get it, and if they don't want to give it up, guess what I'm going to do? And that is in microcosm what we are experiencing all the time. There is not enough, we say. And so we justify taking care of me and mine. Oh, and we use, we use family language to justify it. We say, oh, that's so noble. You're taking care of your family while you rob, cheat, and steal from others. Okay. The party's crashed. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And he starts the pre-party. Jesus lived, taught, and acted like the party was still going on and the host is still generous. I want to zoom in on a teaching of Jesus. This is uh, Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read uh, a large portion of it. And I just want you to listen and think. I want you to put, okay, so TV time out. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the original hearers, which were likely rural people who literally were hand to mouth. They, they were, I mean, they did the work, they got the wages, they bought the food, they ate. The next day they did the work, they got the wages, they bought the food, and they ate. That was their day to day. Or maybe they were farmers and the land would produce some of the time. Many of the people who heard this were of low means. Easy to worry about what happens next. And I want you to think about what could possibly cause Jesus. What sort of worldview does Jesus have to say these things to his disciples, to his followers? All right? Watch this. Watch what Jesus says. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Okay. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn. And yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Jesus says, if you worry, I want you to go bird watching. And I want you to think, if they don't have storehouses, and they don't have like a nine-to-five job, they're not, they're not getting a paycheck, and yet God feeds the birds, and you're worth more than the birds to God, what do you think God will do for you? If he does it for the birds, don't you think he's going to do it for you too? You see the reasoning of Jesus here? Now watch this. 
Can any of you add one moment to their lifespan by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? He continues on. Then he says, all right, you looked at the birds, now look at some flowers. But not the curated kind, the wildflowers, the ones that just kind of grow on their own. Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass, which, by the way, Phoenicians, grass is this little green plant that grows, um, rain comes in, and most of the rest of the world, it's like a little, it's like miniature trees, only like a little blade of it, and it, it's out in fields and stuff. So you know when, you, when you're driving home today, you see all the little rocks? Uh, in other places, it's uh, what they call grass. It's little green stuff. Okay. If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? Don't strive for what you should eat and for what you should drink. Don't be anxious for the Gentile world. So that's uh, the, the culture we live in. Eagerly seeks all these things. And your father knows that you need them. What kind of a worldview would cause Jesus to say such audacious things. Jesus had this worldview. It's the four-part story of the universe. There was a party by a generous host. Now the party got crashed, but we're going to party again. Jesus lives, acts, and expects his disciples to also live and act as if the party's still going on. I want you to think about this. In a world of poverty, in a world in which the marginalized do not seem to get what they need, how can Jesus say such audacious things? And there are many of us here today who've tasted poverty firsthand. There's some of us right now who are like rolling our eyes at this, and I want you to see something. Jesus never, first of all, Jesus knows firsthand what poverty is like. He experienced it himself. Think about the fact that the God of the universe took on flesh became one of us, but became an impoverished one of us. So number one, when you pray, for those of us who are experiencing poverty, when you pray, you pray to one who knows experientially what it's like to go hungry. Two, Jesus never attributes poverty to a lack of God's care, provision, love, or power. Jesus never attributes poverty to a lack of resources. Jesus never attributes poverty to the inability of the host to provide. The scriptures writ large attribute the poverty that you and I see to the greed of the human heart, the fact that the people who were in the pool room raided the people in the den and took all their snacks because there's not enough. One of the most resource-rich places in the world is Uganda, a nation in Africa. I, got, I had the honor to go there. In fact, I'm um, uh, privileged to be able to be a part of a team that's going there next year. I remember the first time I was there, I was struck. The r- amount of resources, natural resources in Uganda is outstanding. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Resource rich like you wouldn't believe. And yet the poverty rate is sky high. And I remember being struck. I was there and I'm seeing kids on the side of the road hungry. Many of them abandoned and abused. Many of them orphans, banging on the side of the van, asking for stuff, asking for food or money. 
And on the same streets that I'm witnessing such dramatic poverty, I see a, uh, a caravan of Bentleys wrapped in ribbon with bouquets of flowers on the top driving down the street. Amazing, beautiful vehicles with some folks all threaded out in the nicest clothes. And I have never seen, in my, to my memory, such a stark juxtaposition between poverty and wealth. Jesus does not look at those children on the side of the road and attribute the lack of, he does not attribute their poverty to a lack of God's provision of resources. The scriptures writ large attribute it to the greed of the human heart. What should cause, real quick, before you start throwing shade on the Ugandans, what should cause every single one of us who have any resources at all, who follow Jesus, to press pause and think, am I the Bentley guy? Or am I the side of the road guy? You see, Jesus calls his disciples to live as if the host is so generous, we don't have to do raiding parties on the people in the den to get their snacks. That the host is so generous, we don't have to lie, cheat, steal, and hoard. We don't have to let greed mark our lives. Jesus lives as if our host is a generous, all-powerful, all-loving God who is able to provide for our needs. And he does this even tasting poverty firsthand. Jesus died marginalized, outcast, and abandoned. And yet he says things like, don't worry. Live generously. Your God will provide for you. Do you not know that your, God, that your God, your Father in heaven, knows what you need? He pushes it. Watch what he says next. This is absolutely bonkers. Watch. But, so instead of worrying, instead of hoarding, instead of living a life of greed, look at what he says. But seek his kingdom. And these things, what's that? The stuff I'm worrying about, the stuff I'm hoarding, these things will be provided for you. If we, if, if we so here, here's, here's the irony. If I seek the stuff, I worry, I stress, I pace around my house, I drug and I drink to try to blind myself from the pain of it or numb myself from the pain of it. If I'm focused on the stuff that I feel like I need or want for my joy in life, my security, my safety, if I'm focused on the stuff, getting more of the stuff, my life will be marked by greed, and I will justify anything to get more of the stuff. This is what Jesus says. Instead of doing that, which is what everybody's doing, and it's killing us, instead of doing that, seek what? Seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. So I want you to see, number one, seek his kingdom. Okay, so if you've ever prayed the Lord's Prayer, you've heard this before. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, right? It's an alignment of the heart. I'm not going to build my kingdom. I'm going to seek yours. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Do not be afraid, little flock, because your father. Okay, 
I want you to see. Generous host. What does a generous host delight in? When all the guests come in and kind of stay in the back, and they're not dancing, and they're not eating, they're just kind of... Is that what a generous host delights in? What does a generous host delight in? When everyone's completely and fully engaged in the party, enjoying the whole spread, sharing with one another, enjoying one another's company, enjoying. Watch what this says. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father, what? Delights. Your father delights to give you what? The kingdom. You got the keys to the kingdom of God. He delights to give you not just morsels, not just snacks, the kingdom. We say at the end of the Lord's Prayer in traditional circles, for thine is the kingdom. And what Jesus is saying here is, yeah, it's his kingdom. He built it. He's the generous host. And guess who he invites in? You and me. He delights in it. Why would you spend your time hoarding? Why would you spend your time fighting with one another over the snacks? Look, he gives us the kingdom. He delights in it. So, so, so what? And this is what Jesus expects his church. Or the the church is just another way to say the collective body of his disciples. Jesus not only acts and teaches and lives as if the host is generous. He calls all of his disciples to do the exact same thing. He's telling every one of his disciples, the party ain't over, baby. In fact, he says this, sell your stuff. Give it to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys for where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. The generous host has provided an amazing spread. And even in the midst of poverty, Jesus says, he's still with you. The party's still going. And this is, what is, this is the instruction. If I can use this framework, if, if we're just thinking through this lens, the local church is a small version of the bigger party. It's a micro party or a foretaste of the party or a sampling of the party that we're all headed to. The local church is not meant to be some drudgery, some sort of religious club. The local church is meant to be a place where we're all sharing as everyone has need. Where we're saying there shouldn't be hunger among us. We, we don't have any, we, God is gonna provide for us. So here, here, I'm gonna sell this table, or I'm gonna give it to you. You don't have a table, here's a table. We're in this party together. Why would I hoard all the snacks? Knowing that God is a good God. That he's a generous host. And the local church is the microcosm, the miniature party that Jesus has set up to communicate to the rest of the world that the party has just begun. That God is a generous God. That he provides enough. And we don't need to live killing each other, cheating each other, stealing from one another, living a life of insulated greed. We can live generous because our God is generous. Listen, play off this metaphor. You're at the party. There's your favorite snacks. What's one of your favorite snacks? Come talk to me here. Cheez-Its, right? Mine too, thank you. There's Cheez-Its. There's, there's a bowl of Cheez-Its. And as you're walking over to get the Cheez-Its, everyone in the room knows that you want Cheez-Its. You're walking with your bowl for round four. 
And as you're walking, all your friends, family, even strangers are like, hey, could you get me some cheese? It's two. Hey, here's my bowl. Can you get me some more cheese? It's two. There's two ways to be feeling. If you think that there's not going to be enough cheese, it's what do you start doing? You start throwing their bowls in the trash. Oh, I missed it. <laughs> you start shrinking their bowls down, right? You take those paper bowls and you collapse them down. That's all I could fit. You start doubling up your bowls. You start living a life of greed and stinginess so you could take care of you and yours. But if you believe that the host is going to provide all the Cheez-Its you need, you're like, give me all your big bowls. I'll take the salad bowl. Give me that. You got five-gallon drums coming in, right, full of Cheez-Its. Because we're not going to run out. The host is good. The host is loving. The host is powerful to provide all that we need. And why would we, if that's true of the host at the Cheez-It party, how would it be any different with the stuff, the money, the time, the energy, the social capital that we have? How would it be any different? How would your life change? How would your world be different if you lived as as if Jesus was telling the truth and your host is generous? How would your life be different? Jesus says that the church is to be marked by generosity. In fact, Jesus does so knowing that the generosity changes us in the doing. Uh, There's a a theologian, Christine Pohl. She says this, part of the the mystery of generosity is that such concrete acts of love are costly, but they both nourish and heal the giver and the recipient. Acts of generosity are so godlike, they nourish the soul of not only the recipient, but also the giver. Greed, on the other hand, hurts the one from whom I've kept and myself. God wants us to enjoy the party. One of the ways that we can live this out, you've seen this next step image around, I think, even on the card that Don mentioned earlier. We want to help put this into practice. And so uh, coming up this uh, Wednesday night, we're hosting our Thanksgiving service project called Tackle Hunger. Here's what I encourage you to do. Serving is God-like. There are many people in your lives. Some of them uh, know God. Some of them follow Jesus. Others, still trying to figure it out. One of the best things that we can do to show what God's like is to invite people in to serve alongside. And I want to encourage you to join me in inviting everybody to serve. This Wednesday night, we're going to have a ton of fun. It's football-themed. I'd encourage you uh, on the, on the uh, walls in the back, if you haven't yet, you can grab one of those tags. You can donate money. You can donate items. Uh, make sure to grab those tags. You can visit uh, Lacey in the lobby after service to uh, complete that. We want to be able to provide uh, food for families in need in our community, underserved families. And the biggest reason why is because we know that God has provided enough, and he calls us to spread out the Cheez-Its. What would it be like if, and we'll take a look at the four parts, what would it be like if this was the way you lived? How would that change your view of your time, the energy, the money, the resources that you have at your disposal? Now, if I'm sitting, in, if I'm sitting down there and I'm hearing that, I'm thinking, I want some assurances. Some Jewish dude 2,000 years ago telling me to not worry because of some birds and flowers. Cool. Great. But 
how do I know that the host is generous? How do I know that the host is loving? And how do I know that the host is powerful to bring these things about? Later in the Gospel of Luke, you find the answer to that question. For Jesus, multiple times said things like, look, we're going to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me. I will be subject, in a sense, he says, I will be subject to an an injustice on a grand scale. And they're going to murder me. But that's not the end. Three days later, I will rise from the grave, conquering over evil and death. And I will prove that God is a good host, and that God is a powerful host, and that God is a loving host. And Jesus said, one day, I'm going to come again, and I will restore that busted up party. In fact, I just want to, I want to encourage you to think about something. We've lost this in at least the modern West. The majority of celebrations and acts of remembrance of who God is and what he's done in the world are centered around feasts. I want you to think about why is it that feasting is such a prominent activity in the people of God over the corridors of human history. Jesus said this around a feast. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I fervently desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And on that night, Jesus was betrayed, and Jesus was crucified for you and for me. The love of the host was most vividly made known to us, not in the giving of snacks, but in the giving of himself. For our generous host has given you everything. He wants to give to you the kingdom. He delights in it. He invites you in. But in order for that to happen, we need to be made new. The greed of the human heart, the self-centeredness of the human heart, the fear of the human heart needs to be restored, redeemed and restored. And Jesus has done so, giving us the power. In his death, he gave of himself to pay for our evil. And in his resurrection, he showed us that death is not the end. And there is an abundance of goodness that stems from the heart of God. What we're gonna do now is we're gonna pass out bread and juice. And we're gonna partake in this ongoing feast of anticipation. Lord's table or communion or Eucharist, depending on your tradition, is an act of remembering our past and our future. It's an act of remembering. It's a feast meant to remember our past, what Jesus has done for us. And it's also an act of remembering our future, that one day Jesus will return and he will restore all that which is broken. And you and I will live eternally at the table, at the ongoing feast, hosted by a generous God.
So I'm going to ask that you would take of those elements, the bread and the juice, hold on to them, reflect on the words of this song we're uh, about to sing, and I'll come back out after everyone's served and we'll take together. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take and drink? Would you just take a moment quietly where you're at and consider how you have experienced the goodness and the generosity of God through Christ Jesus. Would you close your eyes and just give thanks to him now? Jesus, we hear your words that you are good, that you provide for all that we need, and yet moment by moment, it is so hard to remember. But we look to you. We look to your resurrection. And we know that you're powerful to bring these things about. And we know that you love us. And so we give you thanks for your generosity and your goodness, for your love and for your grace that you have showered on. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to shape us into a community that lives the party, that lives generously knowing that you are good and you are loving and that you provide, that we might be marked by generosity for your glory, that others might experience your love and joy. And we ask these things knowing that you love us. You're powerful to bring them about and so we entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.